0: Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Show with Bill Hull and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wait, I thought Bonhoeffer was dead. Who is Bill Hull? He doesn't sprechen see Deutsch, but he doesn't even like sauerkraut. Okay, this is Steve Simmons, and Bill paid me to say this. Bill Hull is tall, good-looking, well-dressed, and smells pretty good. He's written over 30 books. Not one of them is about Bonhoeffer. He went to Bonhoeffer's home in Berlin, and the woman in the front yard wouldn't let him in. He did lecture on Bonhoeffer at Oxford University. They eventually asked him who he was, and he was promptly thrown out. But, ladies and gentlemen, and all the others listening to this podcast, here he is anyway the husband of Jane, a father, a grandfather. Bill Hull. Well, thank you, Steve.
1: I still can't believe I pay the guy to say those things. But Steve is uh, a good man, a good friend, and maybe someday we'll let him come out of his bunker and he can meet the public. But today we're uh, very happy to have with us a good friend of mine and uh, one of my favorite pastors of all time, Jim Putnam. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Jim is, uh, he and I hit it off very early in our relationship. Uh, his, being, uh, his being a former wrestler, and my being a former basketball player, and one thing I did learn almost all, what I learned when I was with Athletes in Action Basketball Team, and we had a wrestling team, is never let a wrestler get a hold of you, because it's over if he ever does. It's true. So uh, that, that was the, goal, the code, don't let that happen. Uh, Jim is Pastor of Real Life Ministries, the founder of little life, real life Ministries uh, and we 'll talk a little bit more about that, but its impact around the world is remarkable. Uh, God has used him magnificently uh, he is a, a man of in many ways we 'd say great accomplishment, but I think you 'll find today in our conversation the reasons that he, God has used him and that they are just kind of plain, ordinary, basic principles and realities of knowing God and God being at work. Now, Jim, um, I know that you're an outdoorsman. I know that you uh, have an athletic background. I know that you have done uh, marvelous feats in uh, in, in the wilderness. And so for that reason... Uh, I have uh, had Steve, our uh, voiceover man, uh, write for you a special introduction, which uh, we'd like to play now. This is just for Jim.
0: Have you ever written a book while sitting in a tree? Have you ever carried a dead animal on your shoulders through the wilderness for hours? Did you kill a bear when you were only three? Have you ever wrestled a lion and lived to tell about it? Oh, this is not the legend of Davy Crockett of Tennessee. No. This is the legend of Jim Putman of Idaho. He was a wrestler. A really good one. He nearly went undefeated through high school and college. Yay! But he lost his biggest match. Like his spiritual ancestor, Jacob, he wrestled with God and lost. Jim has been wrestling the devil ever since. He and God tag-teamed and wrestled an entire city, Post Falls, Idaho, to the ground and pinned it. Real Life Ministries now serves thousands of worshipers and followers of Jesus in the state of Idaho. And Jim's legend as a disciple-making pastor has grown. Untold, thousands around the world have also become disciple-making pastors who are wrestling with the devil and are winning. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Jim Putman.
2: You like that? Well, uh, no. <laughs>
1: That's good. And, and it was part good. of it is true.
2: Part of it is yes. The part of it is guy, not. I know you didn't wrestle a bear. No, didn't do that. You
1: didn't kill a lion with your bare hands. No, but some of that other stuff is true.
2: Well, certainly did not pin. Post Falls, Idaho. It's still <laughs> knocking me around. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, you were telling me about some of the stuff that's going on, and it's always a spiritual war. But thank you for being here. Um, I think that maybe we should begin by talking about the fact you grew up in a pastor's home. <coughs> and tell us a bit about what you saw in the church as a, as a boy and some of your observations. I think that just what you saw, what you experienced, uh, what you thought about the Christian faith, I think this is a great place to begin.
2: Yeah, uh, well, my dad is what I would call a first-generation Christian, in the sense that his parents took him to church, but his, his father, who, by the way, became a really good grandfather, was not a very good dad. Uh, he was faithful to his wife. He, he was a superintendent of schools, ex-military guy, uh, but never told his, his son once that he was proud of him or loved him. Never went to a game, never did anything like that. Uh, my dad was sexually abused by a youth minister when he was a kid, and it shaped his life. Uh, almost committed suicide in high school, college and then did have a relationship with jesus started a relationship with jesus went to bible college met my my mom and the problem for my dad was he wasn't discipled at home he was absolutely sincere both him and my mom my mom wasn't discipled at home didn't come from a christian home divorced They didn't know what it was supposed to look like. And a mistake that I think my dad made was he thought by saying no to the church, he was saying no to God. And so he didn't separate the two things. You know, I have a relationship with Jesus. I work at a church as a pastor and a shepherd, and I care about that, right? But my family is my primary place. And so my dad's MO was, I don't remember growing up at a time when we didn't have somebody for dinner or the phone rang during dinner, or somebody stopped by the house. Uh, We lived in a parsonage, I remember, during my formative years. And, you know, I finally would get the chance to play catch with my dad. And then somebody would come, and that was over. He's off praying over there with that guy. While I'm sitting there going, uh, you know, how does this work? And so my dad was absolutely sincere committed uh the church really treated my dad poorly that made me very angry because you know as you grow up you start hanging out you start seeing things and my dad's given all this time but yet you go to the bathroom and there's the people talking about their your dad's sermon you know uh my dad wasn't paid well so both my parents had to work uh i remember my dad asked for vacation and they got one week a year of vacation lived in a parsonage and so the way my dad bought our first bike was he took his vacation, did a revival meeting so he would have money to buy us a bike. Uh, so I, I didn't think my dad was treated very well. And at the time, as you grow up, you start hanging out with you know, kids going to their houses, seeing the way they lived at home, seeing the way you live at home. And you start going, maybe my dad's crazy. Maybe he's like, he's the freak show because he cares this much about it. He's totally dedicated to this. And these people, they go to church. They they don't act the same at home. You get a job with somebody in the church, right? And they have a whole different language at home or at work than they do at church. And, you know, I was a rowdy ADD kid in trouble a lot didn't sit in Sunday school, didn't, you know, so that there was part of that too. But because my parents, one of the key moments in my life was uh, because my parents were both working so many hours, we had, my parents had five kids in six years. Wow. And so I had four little sisters and there was very little supervision at home after school, sick days. And um, my dad tried to help another family, who's going through divorce, brought their son into our house. And their son had been um, sexually abused and sexually active because of that. And he brought that into this young family with no supervision at a very early age that started a lot of shame and guilt in my entire... So my dad's trying to help somebody, right? But the impact to this family and to what it started and where it went so when you put all of that together, it that led me to this place where I'm filled with shame and guilt, angry at the church, don't really understand. You'd ask me what I was, I'm Christian, but because that's how, what I was brought up. Uh, my dad's kind of a freak. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time, but isn't really around unless there's a problem. If there's a problem, he's there. But... On the proactive side, they're so busy doing so many things that they're not there unless there's a problem. And by the time my dad starts to figure this out, I hit junior high, high school. You know, you think everything's fine with that until they start developing, right? So now he finds out, oh, my goodness, what have I done? And he starts making changes, right? Right. Because he sincerely loves the Lord. And nobody ever showed him. And he starts, start, am I doing this right? He starts knowing it's not working out right. He starts going to counseling. He starts getting help. He starts going to people who have had kids. What am I doing here? And he starts changing. But it's too late for me, in my perspective. Uh, I'm absolutely committed to sports, because I, in my mind, I have to be good at something, because I'm nothing. Uh, because of the shame and guilt of what it got started in my life, I'm nothing. So I, I commit myself to sports, and I become the best. But that does not... that Now I'm the best, but it doesn't fill your soul.
1: So how old were you when you really became successful as a wrestler?
2: I won the national championship in freestyle as a, fre- a freshman in high school. And so I'm now the best... Uh-huh. But so what? So now it's like well what do you do with your emptiness? And and plus I'm I was small, we moved every two years. So I'm always what, the one what on the outside. Did you wrestle at? Uh at that stage, I think I won it when I was uh 130, 135. Okay. So it's the last time I ever saw anything close to that. <laughs> uh, but I I uh you know, I was always the third wheel. Moving to town with kids who had known each other from, so I was uh, the best drinker, best partier, best fighter. You know, didn't have a lot of really deep relationships because we moved a lot. Uh, so I just was filled with a lot of anger, resentment, so more decisions. Going to church at some point? Well, in my house, you went to church. Uh, if you were going to live there until I'm 17 years old, like, now, i I'm, no, I'm not. You want me out? I'll be out. No, and then they, they kind of said, okay, well, you can stay here. And my 17, 16, 17, 18 year, that group right there was, I mean, I, I moved to, I will, you're the pastor. Let me see how I can humiliate you. Mm. You know, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, really, I mean, at first it was let me humiliate you. But I knew my dad was sincere and I knew he loved me. So I didn't really purposely try to hurt him. I just didn't care if it did or it didn't. And so then I go to college on a scholarship. And, you know, I was, if you'd ask me what I was, I'd have told you I was Christian. But, um, but then the, the whole onslaught of evolution, science, all that stuff. And by the, you know, i am already got a drinking problem. And now, you know, I, I'm angry at the church. Now you give me a reason not to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and all of that. And that led to unfettered. They red me my freshman year. And what
1: college were you
2: at? I was at a college. I had scholarships for a bunch. But yeah. I, I, I graduated with a 1.98 grade point average. Hey,
1: we're brothers. Yeah. yeah. And so
2: I went, to a, I went to the best junior college in wrestling in the country. And it was all kids that were really talented and were going to be – but they had to get their right. grades up yeah. to go to the next level. So we won national championships, beat Division One schools all over the country. But I, I'm an alcoholic. I'm dangerous. I'm not a fun alcoholic. I'm a mean alcoholic, a crazy alcoholic. And, uh, and I always said I could quit whenever. Well, now I'm getting in trouble. going to lose my scholarship sort of stuff. Now the coach steps in. <laughs> And now I have to quit. And now I find out, okay, I got a problem. I don't think I, don't think I could do this. At the same time, you know, my dad, who loves me, and I've, I've spent my life hurting, is talking to me about trying to, to bring me back to God through all my problems. And I'm like, I don't believe in God. And so he starts uh, sending me, he told me that there's a lot of scientists who believe in God. And I said, that's an oxymoron, not true. So he starts sending me stuff. And it started this process of, there is no God. Okay, there might be a God, which God? He sent me a book from Josh McDowell uh, as a historian trying to prove you know, religion, ancient literature based on historiography, which I was, I was a history major, graduated to be a history teacher, so I understood that. And so I went, okay, it's Christianity after looking at a bunch of other things in a journey, and he, which he loved me and he pursued me, and I had humiliated him. I couldn't quite understand why he would. He and my mom would care about me after everything I destroyed, uh, including my sisters, and some of my behavior had really hurt them as a young child and then others. So, you know, but they loved me. And... Um, and that went, then it was like, oh, my goodness, it is Jesus. I am going to hell. There's no way I can be forgiven for what I've done. And then he shared the gospel with me, but he didn't go, okay. It, remember, he was a pastor. Yeah. He never wanted me to the Lord preaching ever. I mean, I could care less about what he preached. It was his personal relationship with me, pursuing me, loving me, giving me grace, he and my mom. And then it was, okay, he will forgive me but it's me and jesus and i'll never have anything to do with the church ever and he just kept pursuing me i you've heard you've heard me tell the story
1: what what, what did you see about the church what was it about the church you didn't like
2: um well it was hypocrisy it was these people that claim one thing on sunday but don't really live it they weren't they were maybe they followed the rules to some extent when people were looking when they weren't looking maybe they followed the rules but it, it just wasn't it, it, for me it was like this i was a you know national champion on several national championship teams i saw i knew what commitment was to something i knew what it meant to be committed to something uh i knew people that liked to let wear the letterman's jacket but didn't put the time in yeah. And if Jesus was really the Son of God, and the Bible was really true, he, these people weren't acting like that. They weren't committed to that. They didn't. They they were religious. It was kind of like wrestling. I'm a wrestling fan. They couldn't actually wrestle. They didn't actually support the team. They sure complained a lot if they, the team lost, but they weren't doing anything about it. You know, I I compared the commitment level. To a sport, I, and I was a disciple of wrestling, and I wasn't. You know, I I just I didn't see the commitment. It, I, to me, the church was a bad team that it just re- redefined winning so that they didn't appear to be a bad team. Wow.
1: Yeah, so they kept losing.
2: <laughs> yeah, and they were fine with it. Yeah. They were good with it. So, so my father actually. Uh, First of all, the first conversation was, I'll accept Jesus, but I'm never accepting the church. And My dad didn't say anything about it. (coughs) He just let it go. Excuse me. And I remember I got a call from him a few weeks later, and he goes, hey, I got this problem in the church that he was pastoring at. I go, well, your problem is you're in the church. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, uh, no, I got this problem. There's this family, this really super neat family that's coming to church, that started coming to church. And they want me to come over for dinner, but they don't really like mom. And I don't know what to do. I mean, do I have a relationship with them? Thank you. Uh, Do I not? Do I, what do I do? And I'm like, no, you're married. You know, I mean, I I dropped a few words in there. Like, (laughs) you don't like my mom. Are you kidding me? Uh, And I'll just come down there and take care of it for you, you know. And and, uh, he's like, no, no, no. And uh, I go, no, you guys are married. You can't go over to her house for dinner and do stuff. And then she has to stay home. No way. And my dad paused, and by that time, I knew something I had said. I, something was coming. He had me in some way, but I didn't know how. And he goes, Well, Jim, that's how Jesus feels about his bride, the church. You can't say you love Jesus, but we'll have nothing to do with his church. And I had come to a place where I trusted the Bible. And he said, I said, Where does it say that? I'm not a bride. I'm a man. You know, you can't call me the bride of Christ, you know, and all this. And so he he had to walk me through scripture and do scripture. And I'm like, oh, man, that's terrible. I have to be a part of this losing team. I mean, what am I going to do? He goes, well, God saved you for a purpose in the church. I'm like, what? To teach people how to hurt each other? They already know how to do that with their mouth. Now I'm going to teach them how to do it physically, you know? And he goes, no, no, no. Everything you've learned, all your experiences, God shaped was a part of that. He didn't choose your sin for you, but but he he can take that and turn it into something good. You understand things that other people don't understand. You, all that was a part of your training, and uh, you know, like Moses and being a shepherd, and you know, and he, and he walked through. This is how God works, and, and, and I'm like, really? Wow. Okay. And so he walked me through that whole process. So discipleship for me is my passion. Um, And here's why. Because most people have not been discipled the way I was discipled. They weren't discipled in relationship. They were systematically discipled, come to church, go to a class, uh, read this book. All of which is a part of it. But to have the intentional person be able to... You can call them at 10 o'clock at night. You don't know what to do in your marriage. You, 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 most people don't have that. They have a church they go to, which, which isn't about discipleship. I mean, it is, but the, the most important methodology that Jesus used, Jesus made disciples. When he said, go make disciples, he didn't say, go do it any way you want. He said, I did this with you. Yes, there was the synagogue. Yes, there was the gathering together, but it was the sitting by the fire at night. It's the talking as you walk along the road. It's the modeling. It's all these things that Jesus did that he intended for us to reproduce, but instead we turned it into a curriculum. We turned it into a classroom. We turned it into not life on life. And, and that's what he meant. And when we try to take Jesus' teachings and separate it from his methods, we don't get his results. Amen. This is bro. We're going to take a break
1: right now, and we're going to come back because this I want to hear the rest of this story, don't you? Yes. So, this is, so let's take a quick break.
0: The Bonhoeffer Show is brought to you by The Bonhoeffer Project. As Bill said, The Bonhoeffer Project turns leaders into disciple-makers. Jesus calls us as his disciples to make more disciples. But why should we make disciples? What are disciples? How does one make disciples? And who should join us? If you are interested in accomplishing what you agreed to do when you decided to follow Jesus, then inquire at thebonhofferproject.com. You may qualify to become a member of one of our cohorts. The Bonhoeffer Project has cohorts spread across the U.S. and in several countries of the world. And remember to subscribe to The Bonhoeffer Show by going to the website thebonhoefferproject.com. There you'll see the Bonhoeffer Show button. Click it and subscribe or go to itunes then type in the bonhoeffer show and now back to you bill
1: well thank you steve we're here with jim putman and we're talking about uh, how he came to faith uh, how he came to understand his relationship and responsibility to the church about his family and his father all those kinds of things so jim let's just continue what was it like when you did go back to the church and you walked in, what what things were you thinking and feeling?
2: Well, remember in my journey, it was uh, no God, God, which God, Christianity. It actually went to which Christianity? Because back then, it wasn't, let's all play nice. You got to have Jesus and the right church or you're still going to hell. And so I had to go through that journey. Then it was all right. Okay, Jesus and no church. Uh, but then it was like, all right, church, but no pastor, no. And so when I went back into church, it was after that conversation, and I had to process that a little bit uh, about my dad saying you can't love Jesus and not his church. When I went there, you know, I I hadn't been sober all that long. All my friends were from the world. I had gotten married uh and uh, to a christian girl and and um, who had, my dad had walked me through all this process right of you know i 'll be a christian but i 'll marry a date a non christian now that didn 't work, and walking me through all that okay i 'll date a christian i 'll marry she 'd walk me through all that when I went to church though it was it was like a deja, deja vu you know everybody 's fine yeah. i haven 't been sober very long i 'm I've got all these battles in my mind dealing with consequences from my past, uh, all this stuff. And you come in and you shake hands and everybody's okay. Which then you go, okay, I must be a freak. Except I know that people do this. And, you know, thankfully, I had some interactions with like a 12-step programs, some A stuff, you know, and where. You, you know, my name's Jim Putman, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic, I've been sober two days. Or, I, my name's Jim Putman, I'm an alcoholic, I've been sober for 21 days and I fell off the wagon. There's sponsorship, there's all this stuff. And, and for me, I'm going, okay, I'm involved in this, and, and I'm going to this church, not my dad's church, I'm going to this yeah. church, this church plant. And I'm having this conversation, and, you go, and I'm like, why do they all act like everything's fine when I know it's not? I'm struggling Am I a freak if I say, what happens if I say I'm not okay? And I feel more comfortable at AA and, 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 and these kind of things. And Jim says, or my dad says, Jim, isn't it interesting how AA took everything the church was supposed to be and the church doesn't do it anymore? Yeah. A sponsor like a disciple. Yes. Yeah, sure. You can call any time. A group where you're honest, you're you're transparent, you confess your sins one to another. He said, this is all the way it's supposed to be. So I'm going back to, why isn't that the way it is here? Well, maybe you're supposed to help lead some change there. Yeah. (laughs) No. You know, I don't know anything about this field. And so... I was going to church for a while, and I call up my dad, and I am go, Dad, this is terrible. I'm missing football on Sunday morning. These people aren't real. And he says, he says well, Jim, he says, you're like a lake. My dad always uses these analogies. Yeah. A healthy lake has water coming in and water coming out. If water's only coming in, it floods and kills everything around it. If water's going out no water's coming in, it dries up. You've had water coming in. It's time for you to not just go to church. You need to find a place to serve. You need to, do, you need to ask God to show you where you can be a part of something. Huh. So the next week, the pastor comes up to me, and I'm the only one really around the age of mid-20s. You know, he goes, hey, I got a question for you. Uh, I got these. Uh, in our church, we don't have a youth ministry or anything. I got like four kids in the middle school, freshman area, would you like to 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 start a youth group for us? No. No. And then I and much more, I'm like, I'm offended that you would even ask me. You don't know who I am. I've been sober like three months. And you're gonna give me the junior high kids? What kind of things are going on in this place? Good question. And I told my dad that. He goes, well, Jim, didn't you start praying last week that God would show you where to serve? It sounds like he just answered you. <laughs> I mean, when you pray, shouldn't you look and see what happens next? I said, I don't know anything. These kids know stuff more than I do. He goes, well, just say you don't know. Just here's what we'll do. We'll be on the phone. I'll walk you through like a little lesson, a story. You'll tell the story. And I'm like, what if they ask me questions I don't know? You say... I don't know. I'll know by next week. I go. This is embarrassing. He goes. Take him to Dairy Queen after. It's all good. Uh, Your dad's quite impressive. And so, so if I say the wrong thing, just come back and say. You know, I talked about it with my mentor, and he said. You know, he showed me some scripture, and and I was wrong. And he goes, you'll actually show the kids more by just being real and honest and being willing to say you were wrong and by trying. So I'm okay. Uh, And he just started, hey, you prayed about it, dude. You you were not going to be about you anymore. You're going to surrender to Jesus. You're going to obey Him. He's your Lord and your Savior. You did things your own way, right? Yeah. How'd that work? Not very good. And he would pray with me before, and I went through this. And pretty soon, four is becoming 10, becoming 20, becoming 30. People are going, maybe you're a youth minister. I'm like, no, and hell no. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm wrestling in college my final year. You know, I get mono. Uh, I, so I'm a three-time college All-American. I get so sick I can't even. The senior year is just a disaster, which made me really angry at God. Because I, that was what I was afraid of. If I decided to follow him, he would take away what I wanted to do with my dreams. Because to me, a follower of Jesus was my dad, where you do what he calls you to do, even if nobody appreciates it. You, you follow Jesus, you, you change your plans according to him. And, the re- and, and, and I wouldn't have had to see it that way if I'd have just gone to church with the rest of the Christians. But for me, he had shown me what a Christian was. And now I have no choice. I can't be in this, excuse me, I can't be in this third category of, I, 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 I can't reject Jesus and be lost. I can't be this fake thing that doesn't serve God, doesn't follow God, just goes to church. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to do it like that. Okay, so I, I had to be obedient. Which led then to, um, I said no to youth ministry, but kept doing this as a volunteer, and it got to 100 kids, and yeah. bigger than the church almost. And uh, I go to a public school, and I'm teaching, and I have this youth group kid, this kid in my class that is, uh, started out with great grades. Uh, all of a sudden, attitude switched mid-semester, terrible grades. I, I call her in uh, after class and say, Sarah, what's going on? And she tells me that her dad had been sober for a long time. He'd started drinking again, abusing people, you know, all kinds of terrible stuff. Yeah. And I said, "Well, I have to report this to the school." But can I share with you about Jesus? And I got to share with her about Jesus. And then I invited her to come to the youth group I was leading as a volunteer. And the next day, I came back in, and the principal called me into the office and said, "Hey, you can't talk to her about Jesus. Her parents. She had told her parents that I had talked to her about Jesus." Mm-hmm. Excitedly, Well, they called the school. And so, you, you can't talk about Jesus. And I said, well, you tell me what good Christopher Columbus is going to do that girl. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I made a decision with the help of my disciple maker again. Okay, maybe I am called to this. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, here's the deal. I, the church, my first, I, I decided to do it. I found ineptness. I found duplicity. My first board meeting I ever was at as a youth minister, where I'm at the meeting, the chairman of the board admits he's having an affair with the associate pastor's wife. Wow. Uh, it was everything I, I had imagined it was, in a negative sense. But my disciple maker walked me through what is it like to be David underneath Saul. So... My disciple maker gave me everything my dad didn't have, but he learned. Mm -hmm. He then invested in me in relationship. And he would, because I had a lot of bad memories of things that he had done. But he would say, you know, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. This is the way it should have looked. And so he spoke into my life. In every possible way. From marriage to parenting to all of that. And he helped me build a culture of discipleship. The things that I got from him in relationship. I then took back to the church. And said this is the way. This is what we want to produce. If we want to produce these kinds of relationships. These kinds of people who know how to do this. It means they need to be discipled to do this. What if my dad would have been discipled. When he became a pastor instead of just educated at Bible college and known how to respond at home, how to respond in marriage, known what kind of culture to create, known how to disciple people and interjected that not just I don't have a problem with the preaching. I don't have a problem with classes. I don't have a problem with all those things, but it doesn't stop in the information transfer. It's doing life modeling things practically, not just talking about them theoretically. Walking people through these things, showing them how to do things while they're doing it, understanding that they're in a battle and walking them through those battles. What if we injected and created a system where this was actually produced? And then I had to go back and go, OK, what I got from my dad and my dad asked me a great question. He said, where, what are you a disciple of? I said, I'm a disciple of wrestling. How did they make you a disciple of wrestling? What did they do in wrestling? And then let's apply that to the church. And, and I, I, I came up with this question at that time as we were processing that. What if I used the methodologies we use in the church for my wrestling practices, for creating a team and wrestlers? What would I get? Inform spectators at best. Yeah. If, I, if I used, like, I'm going to once a week... Come, and I'm going to show you a wrestling move for 30 minutes. I'm just going to show you up here on the stage. Now, just go home and try that with your little sister.
1: (laughs) You take down somebody on stage and then go home and do it. Yeah, I'll
2: just practice the move. i got somebody up here, i am just practice the move. I'm going to to theoretically tell you about the rules. I'm going to theoretically talk to you about why you get in body position, how you do things. Now I'm going to show you the move. Boom, boom, boom. Show you the move over and over again, 30 minutes. Now come back next week and I'll show you a different move. What would that have created? In, well, that would have created what we're getting in the church. But what if I took what, I, what they did with me in wrestling, the way they showed me a move, gave me an opportunity to do it, practice it, guided practice, uh, coached me as I went along, let me coach the, the, the older kids to coaching the younger kids. Uh, wrestling is a brutal sport. So you're not just, your partners, if you think of this as an individual sport, it's not. I can't get good at wrestling without a partner to practice with. And the relationships you form in wrestling help you get through the weight cutting, the pain, the support you get. Because you don't, you don't have a lot of fans. You know, in basketball, or in some states you might, but in basketball you've got everybody applauding you. In wrestling, hardly everybody's in the stands. Your team that you're with understands you. They understand the pain you're going through. They support you. In church, you just check a box, you go. You learn a little bit of information. You don't know how to actually apply it at home or in any other venue. You don't, you know. Mm -hmm. What if we swap those things? And so what I did was I went, all right, I'm going to take what they did in wrestling and apply that to church. I'm not against a 30-minute practice session, but we're going to create places for you to actually practice with one another with guided coaches. We're going to have common language. We're going we're gonna to define terms the same way. We're going to start a little kid's program that feeds the junior high program, that feeds the college program, that feeds the, the adults program. We're going we're gonna to do all that. We're going to make disciples. And then as I'm starting to think through this, my, my disciple maker would go, yeah, that's scriptural. See, Jesus did that here. Yeah, that's scriptural. Jesus did that here. And then I'm like, well, why are they taking all these teachings of Jesus but not using them in any way Jesus used them but expect people to get what Jesus was? So that's kind of my journey. And so that's how you...
1: And so when you started Real Life Ministries,
2: kind of describe,
1: the, you know, what were you trying to do? I mean, what were you trying to accomplish when you started that ministry?
2: Well, what had happened was I'd been a youth minister for 10 years, and the yeah. problem is, is I was raising up kids in small groups. Yeah. Small group leaders. I was discipling kids who were discipling kids. The problem is you get age 18 and they graduate out. Right. The problem is, is that the rest of the church says, no, we don't want you to just do anything. Your disciple, just sit there and listen to our music. Right? And so these kids are going, I got no place to play. And so that was really what drove me. I loved youth ministry. I would have never changed it, but it was like the tail wagging the dog. There was a ceiling. These disciples had no place to play. They were running a completely different system and weren't even wanted. There's no place for them. So I went, all right. And I got really frustrated in the church and... And my disciple maker again said, hey, well, what if God made you to be a head coach and and God taught you the things he taught you to be? What is it like to be in a system where there's a ceiling and what you know, what if all these lessons you've learned now you can apply them and start a church? So when we went and started the church, we had three months salary and four, four people. And we didn't have a video projector. We had nobody that played music. We had. No buildings, no nothing. But we knew how to make disciples who would make disciples. So we started in small groups making disciples that made disciples. So pretty soon, when you're making disciples who know how to share their faith, know that you're to connect with people you shared with in relationship to help them pursue. And and as we started to do this, you know, four people became ten, became um, 500, became 8,000 in a little area. And then you're going, okay, our job is to disciple everyone. But here's the other thing we, that I believed is uh, as a high school coach and I've been insistent in college coach, the difference between a high school coach and a college coach was a college coach goes all around the country, recruiting players that have already been developed. Not that they won't coach them further, but they already know how to play a high school coach. Doesn't can't recruit outside the school district. <clears throat> So if you, want, if, if you want kids to be able to wrestle in high school, you can't start them as freshmen. You have to start a little kids program, a junior high program, that feeds the high school program. And the way it works is that in the high school program, then your high school kids become your junior high coaches in your little kids programs when they graduate, right? And the parent, they become parents, and they start teaching their kids when they're two. Pretty soon you've created a program that destroys everybody, right? Yeah. Take some time. Well, we had a church of eight thousand, but all of the staff came from within. They got saved or got in a small group. They knew how to make disciples. Then they became co- uh, disciple makers who pr- planted groups. Pretty soon, all of our our staff. We had over a hundred staff. All came from within as disciple makers. Now they they didn't know necessarily. Their struggle was they didn't know how to organize and administrate that many people.
1: Yeah.
2: So their weakness was at the organizational administration level, because that's a gifted mission. So now you're running a town, yeah, right?
1: A small town, that's right. And
2: it's not very reproducible. And, and you can't just keep building bigger and bigger buildings. So at that point, because we had people traveling from 100 miles radius, we went, We got it, 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 the, the bigger it gets, the less reproducible at the highest levels. So rather than keep building bigger and build build buildings, now let's start planting, take these guys, create smaller places where it is more reproducible, using and teaching guys. Some of them are not meant to be senior pastors and teachers, but some of them have the same gifts. So now we started planting churches Uh, in the area from the guys that got saved and were developed in our church, now they're planting churches using the same systems and now they're planting churches that are planting churches that are planting churches. But they're all people that got raised up as disciple makers. Everyone's a disciple who can share their faith at home, wherever they work, live, and play. But some are leaders and you want to be able to disciple everyone, identify the leaders that are called to ministry and help them become leaders who understand how to make disciples, who who reproduce disciple-making systems that incorporate the the preaching, the teaching, the small groups, the classes into a disciple-making environment that's relational.
1: Great. Okay, we're going to take another break, and I have a few more questions for Jim before we let him go.
0: If you want to go deeper into Bill's and the Bonhoeffer's teachings, go to www.thebonhoefferproject.com. There you'll find videos, books, and other resources that present both the problem and the solution to the disciple-making challenge facing today's Christian community. You can join a cohort or read Bill's and other Bonhoeffer Project team members' blogs and connect to Bill's books and articles. Remember to subscribe to The Bonhoeffer Show, go to iTunes, and do it today. We need to hear from you so Bill can answer your questions. All of Bill's answers are guaranteed to make you better looking, lose 10 pounds, and the IRS to write you a very big refund check. Well, not really, but you get the idea. Now, back to the king of culture for critical analysis of whatever crosses his mind. Take it away, Bill.
1: We're back now with Jim Pubman, and uh, Jim, we were talking about, we've talked about your history as a young man, and how you came to faith in Christ, how you entered into the church, what you saw about the church that was working, what you saw could actually work, and taking what it's like training people, like in wrestling, for example, and how that training, these training concepts can work in making disciples. Now you're... uh, not only a pastor at Real Life Ministries, the lead pastor and the founder, but you're also leader of a global ministry uh, work called Real Life Ministries. And I know, for example, the the workbook that you use has, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have actually gone through that course. So tell us about what what now, what advice do you have for pastors, uh, for Christian leaders about how we can make disciples and have impact, and how making you just kind of generally what what is it that really is on your heart about this?
2: Well, the network that we started is called the Relational Discipleship Network, yeah. and what we've done is we've taken pastors through a training on how to actually make disciples, and uh, and then we train them how to s- organize their church in such a way that discipleship can happen, and it's it, it, the same thing we did with the life group system with our home group system. We, we train some pastors, do life with them, train them to be uh, uh, leaders of, of small groups of pastors. So now if you're in our network, uh, we've got like a baseline. You can get information about what we're doing in different trainings. But if you're in the uh, established network, it means you have a coach who's already shifted their entire church Or in the process of doing that, who helps you take the principles, apply them to your own life, and then to your church. So you actually have somebody, like my disciple maker, as I was going through all these changes, I could call them. I could talk to them. I could have a conversation. It's not a talking head where they're sitting there listening and trying to apply. No, because here's the deal. You could have all the right plans in the world. It gets tough to actually pull them off. And you need somebody you can commiserate with who can encourage you, who can hold you accountable. And so it's a coaching process with relationship, and we do that all around the world now uh, so that we get away from the talking head. But here's what I say to pastors uh, all the time. Don't come to a conference or to what we're doing with the mindset of, I have to change my system, my church. Don't do that. Come and say, I have to change me. Uh, most pastors, and I'm, I'm serious, Bill, this is, this is absolutely true. When I start, when I ask somebody, a pastor, if they've been discipled, they say, of course. And then I'll say, well, let me tell you what I mean by disciple. Maybe 2% have ever truly been discipled.
1: And so it's hard to, they don't have a deep conviction. About
2: well, they don't know how to do it. They, they know how to sit in a class and educate. They went to Bible college for that. They, they don't know how to disciple. They've never been discipled in that way. Uh, they, they don't, if maturity in Christ is not just knowing the word and not just being skilled at using your, your abilities and gifts to teach or preach or whatever, it's your ability to be in relationship with God and others. Paul said, you can know all mysteries and speak in the tongues of angels and men, but if you have not love, you're nothing. If all along the prophets hang on two commands, love God and love others, pastors are the loneliest people in the world. Yeah. They, don't, they, they can't be transparent because I'll lose my credibility. People expect them to be perfect. They keep everybody at a distance. Because maturity and good leadership is you don't let your, your staff know what you're struggling with because you've got to be an authority. It's organizational first, right? Christianity second. Maturity in Christ is to love God and love others and let them love you too. And so, when we start talking about what maturity is and defining it, and then let you experience it and live in it, and then you, you, can, you can't lead something you don't know how to do and it's never been done. And, um, true story, I was with a pastor that uh, in, in another country... And uh, I went to help train on discipleship, and he was—they had a hundred thousand baptisms wow, that year. And he was just all excited, sharing this to me what they were doing. And we're making disciples, hundred thousand, and and he, he goes, "Well, what are, you, what are you writing right now?" And I said, "Well, I, I wrote a book called Power of Together, and it's the premise of uh, that most people who think they're mature." Uh, I think they're mature because of their skill sets and their knowledge. And pastors are lonely. They don't share. They get you know they're expected to be perfect all this stuff. And, and, and I was sitting with him and his whole family that runs this ministry. And two, two of his kids sitting in the room said yeah we in here we've talked about this all the time. We don't trust anybody in our organization outside of this room. I wouldn't share or be honest with anybody about my struggles, marriage, whatever. Um, and I go, well, I thought you said you were making disciples. He said, we are. I said, it doesn't sound like you're making very good disciples. Because if you're a disciple of Jesus, you should be the most trustworthy, empathetic, uh, honest people. You should be building around you the most godly Jesus-like people on the planet. And if you're not doing that, then you're not making accurate copies of Jesus. Our definition of maturity, it's kind of like going back to the sports analogy. If your sports analogy uh, in wrestling, the definition of a good wrestler is someone who is, there's three positions, top, bottom, and neutral. If your idea of creating a mature, great wrestler is that they're good at top and bottom, but not on their feet, neutral, you have a hole in your game a mile wide. And if I'm coaching against you, I will walk my kids through that hole every single time. The enemy knows exactly what he's doing. Discipleship is a relational process because in the end, it should create a relational person. It makes sense that in a relational process, you make a relational person. It does not make sense that in a transfer of information process, you would make a relational person. Pastors are lonely. They're not making accurate copies of Jesus. Therefore, as the head goes, the body follows. We have the right information, we don't carry each other's burdens. We don't tra- confess our sins to one another. We're not open and go, got, I don't know what to do at home. Nobody even know you didn't know what to do at home until, until you, the divorce decree comes out and you went to church with them every week and how were you? Fine, fine, fine. We live in a cluster, in a culture, that the right information without support and family and body and team, you won't make it. We're creating people who, who might know the word and have skill sets but do not have the support they need to withstand what this world's handing out.
1: You have, some, you have a couple of books on this subject, don't you? What are the names of their books?
2: Oh Well, I have a book called uh, The Power of Together, which I'm, it's still out there. Well, but not the
1: one you wrote in the tree that you ended up... You told me you were uh, sitting up in a tree with your laptop yeah. and you were finishing
2: that. Yeah, up. and I actually had my son in another tree, and I was cow calling for a bull yeah. to come in and writing, and all of a sudden a bull came in and my son killed an elk while I was writing the rest of his book. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah. I tr- trying to carry a bull out with yeah. your laptop, yeah. that just... It's not very not easy. Yeah. But uh, it was... Uh, it, 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 my sad, but the sad thing for me yeah. is, when I look at most Christians, I mean, we, we all know this, biblical worldview amongst Christians is very low. Uh, those who serve, not very many. Those who give, not very many. But even, and that's, those are all great, right? Tend to church 1.1 times a month. But my life verse is Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It says, uh, see to it, my brothers and sisters, that none of you gets a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So don't fall into temptation. Don't drift away. Hebrews 2. Then he says, so see to it. You don't get a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But he says, encourage one another daily. Therefore, encourage one another daily. That word encourage means to exhort or admonish. It means, Bill, you can do it. Or admonish, Bill, what are you doing? Encourage one another daily so that your hearts will not become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We are called, Jesus said by this all men will know you're my disciples by your love. You can know all mysteries. Speak in the tongues of angels without love. You're nothing. Love is. We theoretically talk about love in the church. But when it comes to doing life with other believers, really, we just try to fit a little Jesus in the spare times we have. And then we wonder why we look like the rest of the world, act like the rest of the world. And pastors are going, well, I got to, I got to fit, you know, try to make it as easy for my people as possible. This is where you and I are in such agreement. If Jesus is Lord, you don't fit Jesus in. You fit the rest of your stuff in around Jesus. Right. When you start giving in to the culture, it's not love. Because you're giving them something that will kill them. A distorted, contaminated version of Christianity. We have to call them out of what the world's doing. Into what Jesus says. Because Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows who we are. He knows how the enemy works. If we're going to make disciples... They need to have the right information. They need to know that they have gifts, sk- gifts and skills and abilities that, they, that God called them to use. He saved them from something for works of service, which God planned for you to do. You know, you know how to do all that. But they, we are to be knit together in a spiritual family where I can count on you and you can count on me. Uh, the, the world is lonely and they need relationship like they need water.
1: Well, you know, Jim, what you've shared with us today is rich and profound (coughs) and moving. And we thank you so much for what you've shared your heart today. And I'm going to pull a fast one on you here at the end now. And that is, we do like to do what we call the best and worst of the week, or the last few days. So do you have a best and worst of the last few days? What's the best and what's the worst?
2: Well, I've had a, I've had a rough month. Yeah. Uh, I've had uh, I had a guy die in our parking lot on Sunday at church during third service. Had a home group leader killed with four kids, a drunk seventeen-year-old. Had a family taken a homeless family, and the eighteen-year-old son of the homeless family killed the eighteen-year-old daughter of the. Uh, I had. Uh, our home group, my dad and a couple of our elders go to help a home group leader who was drunk. Not a home group leader, Should be a home group member who's struggling with alcoholism. Pulled out a gun, so they had to call 911, and the cop killed the guy in the front yard in front of my dad and the elder. Had a 45-year-old woman with her daughter getting a cat out of the tree, fall out of the tree, died. I mean, it's been like, it's like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, that's what really, it's really been like. And what I really enjoy, the best part of that is, I didn't have to carry it alone. I don't have to pretend it's okay. I can be mad and discouraged and uh, even frustrated with God, and it's okay. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to pretend. The best part of my life is the relationships I have with other brothers and sisters in Christ who walk me through life, and I get to walk them through life. So I know you were probably uh, mm-hmm. wanting a, something a little bit less traumatic than that, no, but that's, that's, that's where that's I'm kind of at idea. right well, now. Well, you
1: know, the one thing I remember, when I went to Jim's church, uh, somebody said, now that guy over there, that's Jim's father. And so I went over and introduced myself to him because, to me, he's one of the heroes.
2: He the is maker. my disciple maker. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and he's never had a big church he was never, you, what you would, you'd never clap for him mm-hmm. because, it, you know, it, unless you knew the backstory. He's changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people by loving Jesus and loving people one yeah. at a time.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I can't think of a better way to end. Let's thank Jim
1: for being here.
0: Hope that the show wasn't too bad. Jane Hull wants everyone to know that if anything Bill said was offensive, (laughs) she feels your pain. If you were upset by anything Bill and his guests said, well, (laughs) mission accomplished. At the Bonhoeffer Show, we value irreverent, satirical, and generally inappropriate behavior. But when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission, we don't mess around. Remember, subscribe, we promise. No private jets, no white suits, and definitely no toupees.